This is an ABC podcast. Hello, this is Coronacast, a daily podcast all about the coronavirus. I'm health reporter Tegan Taylor. And I'm physician and journalist Dr Norman Swan. It's Monday the 9th of November. And it looks like America knows who its president next year is going to be. And even though Joe Biden's not sworn into office yet, and there's actually a couple of legal challenges standing between him and the presidency, he's already signalled that his first action when he takes the office is to try to get the coronavirus pandemic under control, which is a mammoth task. They've got so many cases. I think they've got around more than 100,000 cases a day coming through at the moment and about 1,000 deaths a day as well. So Norman, just to put you on the spot here, if it was President-elect Dr. Norman Swan, what would your action be to get coronavirus under control in the States? Well... I'd probably say thanks, but no thanks to such a difficult task. (laughs) We've just got to be systematic about it. And remember, what he's going to be doing is taking up the reins on the 20th of January or thereabouts next year, Inauguration Day. And before that, he's got almost no power. All he can do is actually get the plans and try and push from behind. The transition is going to be messy and aggressive and unrelenting. It's not going to be a transition like George W. Bush to Obama during the financial crisis, he's going to get no help at all from the system. So, you know, Obama was able to influence policy before he was actually president, and and there was an open door for that. That's not going to happen here. So he's really helpless until, until he gets into power, unless something miraculous happens in the Trump administration. So you've got to project forward. So you've got to do two things. One is, in the unlikely event that he gets cooperation from the Trump administration, what would he do? And in the much more likely event that he takes up the reins and able to do something on the 20th of January, what would he do? Well, by the 20th of January, with nothing in place and no vaccine, it's going to be well over 200,000 cases a day and possibly double the number of deaths. There's already a high percentage of ICU beds in the United States taken up with people with COVID-19, and that's going to get worse. So there's a vaccine strategy and a non-vaccine strategy. So the first thing I'd be doing is getting a vaccine task force together to work out how you're going to administer what will be for America and indeed for Australia and other countries, the fastest, largest immunization campaign the world has seen. So that's the first thing is you've got to have a vaccine task force to work out how you're going to administer the vaccine, who's going to do it, where you're going to get it, is it going to be free? The presumption is that it is and all those complexities, given that it's going to be the states probably who have to administer it. Then you've got to work out what's your treatment strategy, because too many people are getting shock bills as a result of having COVID-19 through no fault of their own. So is he going to provide some support for people being treated with COVID-19 and long COVID so that the financial burden moving forward is lowered on the community from having had COVID-19. You're going to have to have a separate task force on aged care, like we've had a problem here, they've got a problem there. And then you've got to look at prevention. I mean, these are things that have just got to happen in parallel. It's not you do one, then the other. Then you've got to work out what is the capacity for testing? Is testing happening to the maximum capacity? Have you got contact tracing infrastructure in place? because you you are going to need that moving forward. And how do you actually get that in place, particularly in Republican states who don't want to hear a bar of it? And the, you may have to accept that you're only going to be partially successful, as indeed they were in 1918, 1919. The America suffered, United States of America suffered really badly from the Spanish flu. It wasn't really the Spanish flu, but you know what I mean. 
because it is fragmented, where you've got Bolshe states who do their own thing, very hard for the federal government to exact power, and it hit hard. And then you're left with social distancing, because the only thing that works is social distancing. And how can you put social distancing in place? It may become a lower priority if there's a vaccine, and you're rolling that out fast. But the vaccine's going to take a while, and you could see a rapid escalation in cases. So how do you incentivize states who want to social distance to do it? like we have here, where there's financial support, where you're able to provide help for people so they're not disadvantaged by socially distancing. Those are all the sorts of things that you can do. But if you really want to stop the, it in its tracks, there's only two things you can do, really. One is a vaccine, and the other is extreme social distancing, basically a lockdown. You've seen how that works, and it works really well, but it's painful. Australia is a really different country to the States. Culturally, I think we've seen that really playing out during this pandemic, that um, Australians on the whole were really happy to, to stay home and to close the borders. If America could take one thing from Australia on how we've managed the coronavirus response, what would it be? What really made it work in Victoria eventually was community engagement. And you had those very diverse communities in that northwest corridor, moving down to towards the southeast as well where they were of English-speaking background, different cultures, different religions, different opinion leaders in many ways of people who, the, who they would believe and follow. And so you had to have a very sophisticated community engagement program. And that's what Victoria eventually put in place. And it's what they don't have in the United States apart from a few states. I think New York, New York has managed to do that to some extent, um, but not many others. Well, I'd vote for you, President Swan. Uh, but let's talk a bit about Australia and Victoria specifically, because we're seeing more donut days than ever, which is really fantastic. And uh, we're now seeing a lifting of restrictions starting to happen in Victoria. The Ring of Steel is coming down around uh, Metro Melbourne, but mandatory masks are staying in place. And Mary's asking, when will masks no longer be mandatory in Victoria? She's saying, is it inconsistent with comparable states like New South Wales in terms of case numbers? Well, I suspect if you were to speak to some of the medical authorities in New South Wales, they look enviously at Victoria where they've gone to mandatory mask wearing. Um, because you're still getting cases popping up in New South Wales and you're still getting alerts for train, certain train journeys at certain times of the day. New South Wales desperately needs to open up public transport and lose the social distancing on public transport, which they could if they had mandatory mask wearing. They're just not willing to burn the political capital. So Victoria would be nuts to lift mandatory mask wearing. They've used up political capital to, in order to impose it. And you could probably lift the need in outdoor areas. It, it really is of very little use now in outdoor areas, but still make it mandatory. If you want to get on a tram or a train or you want to go into a shop, you need to be wearing a mask. Of course, the easiest way to do that is to actually put on a mask before you leave the house so you don't have to fiddle around with it before and after. But it just gives that extra layer of protection when you don't know how much virus there is around. So at the moment, it looks as though there's no virus around in Victoria, but uh, you just don't know what's going to happen and you're going to have people starting to come back from overseas. If I was officer commanding um, in both New South Wales and Victoria, I would be saying public transport, mandatory masks, and you could probably lose a lot of the social distancing and get going with public transport. But it, there will come a time in Victoria where it, it will seem fairly pointless if they've gone for a long, long time without, I don't know what a long, long time equals, but probably two or three cycles of the virus with absolutely no spread, then you'd think, well, mandatory masks probably could be relaxed. 
So you mentioned New South Wales there, Norman, and Jack's got a question about that, saying why doesn't New South Wales do some mass testing in these areas of concern? Wouldn't that help flush out cases? Well, it's good you use the word flush there, Jack, because the sewage is turning up problems, um, for example, through the western suburbs and also down southwest Sydney, uh, Moss Vale, there's been a a cluster there. And the sewage has been a very useful way of detecting that there might be COVID-19 in the community. Remember, it's not immediate. It depends on how they do the sewage testing. And we're going to get an expert on to explain that. But my understanding is that the, the sewage samples are aggregates of a few days sewage. So it's not, you, it's not necessarily that day. It's a kind of average sampling of the pre- previous few days. And they hold it back and then they test it. And it's not that well defined, at least at the moment, in terms of the exact suburbs where it might have come from. Although some people are suggesting, and I really don't know whether it's happening, where you get very close to source testing, where you've got um, areas in the sewage system where you can actually go in and really test a very localised area, maybe a set of buildings and that sort of thing. But at the moment, I'm not sure that we're doing that. And just to finish very quickly Jack's question, while we're not doing, well, I don't think they're, while they're not doing mass testing in those areas, they are going and asking people to come forward in large numbers. And the testing numbers actually in New South Wales and Victoria are pretty good, given there's very little virus around. So congratulations to people in both those states. Great numbers. Absolutely. And that's all we've got time for on CoronaCast today. Please keep on sending in your questions. Go to abc.net.au slash coronacast, click ask your question, and then mention CoronaCast so we can pick it up. And we'll see you tomorrow. 